0: Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you lift up the name of Jesus? If you believe in the name of Jesus, if you believe the name of Jesus has the power to save, if you believe the name of Jesus has the power to heal, would you praise him one more time? Would you give him a shout? Heavenly Father, we believe in your name. God, we thank you that there's no other name by which we can be saved. God, we have no power on our own to get us out of the mess we get ourselves into. But at the name of Jesus, there is hope. At the name of Jesus, there is freedom. At the name of Jesus, there's reconciliation. At the name of Jesus, God, there's transformation. God, I pray you transform us today by your word, transform us by your life. And God, I pray that we would be open to hear what you want to say to us today, God. We honor you. We praise you. And, God, we thank you for your grace that's so undeserved. And we worship you today. And in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, we're in a series called Whisper, how to hear the voice of God. And I'm excited about today as we get to hear about how we hear the voice of God through his word. It's going to be a great time. Um, Give a high five to your neighbor as you have a seat real quick. I'm excited about today, Um, and jumping into this series that Pastor Caleb started last week, uh, Whisper, How to Hear the Voice of God, Um, and and here's really what we want to kind of do in this series, is because there's a lot of voices in our life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, and if I have never had the opportunity to meet you my name is John. I'm excited to be here speaking to you guys and uh, sharing these times with you. I'd love to say hi to you after and meet you afterwards, but I'm um, excited to share on part two here, hearing the voice of God, um, because there's so much noise in our world. I don't know if you've realized this or noticed this, but there's political noise. Um, there's relationship noise. I mean, if you're, if you're a parent, you understand, like, it's always noisy. Like, you can't even get a moment where it's quiet because kids are just, they need something, they're grabbing at you. Um, So it's always, there's just noise, entertainment noise um, to take our attention off stuff. If you're a fan of social media, that can be noise that distracts us from the voice of God. So this series is all about how to hear the voice of God. Because we believe, I believe personally, um, I, I know Christians believe, we believe at this church that God wants to communicate with us. God desires to speak to us. That's the cool thing about a relationship with Jesus is he actually wants to communicate with us. And we have to be listening to what God wants to say because we believe he wants to communicate. In fact, kind of this series is wrapped around this idea that God is speaking. God is speaking to us. The question is, are we listening? Are we drowning out the other noise so that we can hear what God Is saying to us, in a world with a lot of noise, we need to learn to discern the voice of God. And here's really, I love this statement. Uh, It says, learning to hear his voice will enable us to understand our purpose. Learning to hear the voice of God will enable us to understand our purpose. That's really what we want and what we're desiring, and we believe, and what we're looking at in this series is based off Mark Batterson's book, Whisper, and and we see it that there's seven different languages or styles that God will use to speak to us. One we're going to talk about today is scripture. Um, There's people God uses, pain. Um, promptings, God uses our desires, our, the doors that are in front of us, and dreams. All of these are different ways that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks on how God communicates to us and speaks to us. But I believe today is vitally important because if you don't get today right and you don't begin to understand how God speaks to us through Scripture, everything else is out of whack. Because we believe that the Bible is not just a good book. The Bible is not just um, like Christian chicken soup for the soul. like It's not just a good guide with some good ideas. Like We believe at Project Church that this, the Bible is literally God's word to us. It's God speaking to us. And if the creator of the universe took the time to inspire the writing of these words, we should give it the time to see what he had to say and see what he wants to say to us. And so that's why this is very, very important. Um, the idea, this, this study of epistemology is this branch of ph- philosophy that it's concerned with, like, the nature of your beliefs. It's kind of the why you believe what you believe. A- and it's important because we need to understand that when we begin to look at the Bible. Because your beliefs are going to establish your moral baseline, your decision-making for basing what's right and wrong. Um, the, the things you do, and, and we believe that the Bible is not just the starting point, but it's actually the foundation. It, it, it's the launch, it's the beginning. Everything comes back to, we filter, as Christ followers, we filter everything through the lens of Scripture. What does God's Word say? And, and that's why we want to look at this, because it helps us get fixed on what we believe about the Bible, which determines how we act and how we look at every other area of life. Some key verses um, about Scripture. Second Timothy verse, or chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of God will not pass away. Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I love that idea because if you're anything like me, I grew up in the church. And, and I had many times in my life where I call it white knuckling, where it was like, I was going to just, I was not going to do this sin again. This was not going to give me. I promise God, if you get me out of this one, I'll never do it again. And then like the next week, I'm like... I did it again, and God, I promise this time I won't do it again. Like, you kind of have that same struggle over and over. Well, what this verse in Psalm is telling us is that it doesn't say if you just try really hard, eventually you'll stop doing that sin. No, it says, I have stored up your word. It means when we get the word of God in our life, that is going to affect our behavior. When we get the word of God in us, it affects how we begin to pour out and how we begin to live our life, But as I was thinking about this idea of God speaking to us through his word, the question I had, and I started thinking about everybody who comes into not just Project Church, but churches all over, because we all come from different backgrounds, we all come from different scenarios in life, uh, we've had different experiences, and, and my thought was, well, what if... They're saying, you know, because I grew up in church where it's, you got to read the Bible. Good Christians read the Bible. But what if you're coming into this place and you're like, I'm not even sure what I think about the Bible. Like, I'm not even sure what I think about this Jesus guy you're talking about. And, and side note, if you're here and you're, like, exploring this faith thing, maybe somebody, like, tricked you into coming here, and you're like, they're doing like Christian karaoke up there, I have no idea what's going on, but like, and you're like, I don't know why I'm here, you just said you were going to buy me lunch um, to meet you at the theater, and you tricked me, and they started talking about Jesus, um, like whatever reason you're here, we believe you belong, like, like we're a place where you don't have to believe to belong, like you're welcome here, in fact, we're a place that we're excited if you're here exploring this journey, If you're like, I'm figuring out my faith. I'm figuring out what I believe about this. It's a safe place to do that. In fact, I think a lot of people get nervous if they have doubts or if they're like, I'm not sure I believe that. I think they think God's going to be like mad at them. Do you know that God welcomes your doubts? God's like, bring your questions. He's not up there like freaking out. You're going to have a question that's going to like stump him. Um, If you bring a doubt or a fear, he's not going, Holy Spirit, what do I do with this one? Like he's not freaking out. Okay, like he's not asking, Gabriel, come help me. Abraham, are you, what are you doing over there? Like, I need some help on this one. He's not freaking out. He actually welcomes our questions, our doubts, our fears. And so this is a safe place to explore this journey, this thing we call faith, and explore Jesus and because it's going to lead you, I believe, the more you begin to discover who Jesus is, you're going to be transformed by his life because you can't be around Jesus and not be changed impossible. You're either going to be like, I need to get out of here because I don't want any more of this, or you're going to be like, I want to get closer to this guy and find out more about him. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, people who did not like Jesus or were adamantly opposed to Jesus found themselves just wanting to be around him. There was something about Jesus. And so we want to invite everybody to explore. And, And this idea of hearing God through scripture is the first question is, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust it? Because if I don't trust the Bible, why am I going to read it? Why am I going to base my life on that? And so what I wanted to do is I'm going to try to go quickly through this, and this is just an overview. Like, if, like I'm going to tell you at the end, I'm going to give you some resources, but I encourage you to take this and do some deeper study on your own. Um, there's people who spent years and years and years and thousands of dollars studying some of this stuff. So this is a brief snapshot it's just to kind of whet your appetite to, be, to show you there's some truth and validity to when Caleb's up here and we open up the Bible. And whoever's teaching opens up this Bible that we're not just doing it because it makes us feel good, but we actually believe the words that are written in it. We believe where it came from is true, that it's accurate. And so we're going to look at um, some things. It's, it's called apologetics where you defend kind of your beliefs, it, it, the defense of, your, of, of truth that we believe to be true. And so I'm going to give you five quick Things that start with the letter E, so they're easy to remember and write down if you take notes or if you want to do that thing. But the first thing that kind of helps us trust the Bible is the first thing we see is evidence. All of these are evidence, but specifically this part of evidence, if you look at historical documents, and, and I'm talking not just the Bible, but any ancient manuscripts, any ancient documents, one of the ways... They use to determine the validity or the credibility of those documents is how many copies are there, how many copies of their documents. And, and just side note, maybe you didn't know this, they didn't have kinkos back in the day. Like you couldn't go to FedEx Copy and get copied. Like they had to literally handwrite these copies of these manuscripts and and some of the greatest um, works of uh, our documents that we have. That nobody argues the validity of them. It's measured by how many copies. For example, Caesar. Some of the writings of Caesar. Nobody would say, "Oh, Caesar didn't exist." Like go to colleges, universities, they won't argue the existence and the writings of Caesar. uh, We have of some of the writings of Caesar, we have ten copies. They span a time from original to the first copy we have is about nine hundred and fifty years in between those copies, And, and nobody in in university scholars would not argue these documents. They would not say, "I don't think they exist." Um, some other writings of Plato, we have seven copies of his that span from beginning or original to copies 1,300 years. Uh, some Homer's Iliad, one of the most recognized, we have some of the most copies of his, 643 copies with a time gap between original to copy of about 400 years. So that one, and, and you couldn't go on a university campus and they wouldn't be like, that's, that's not true, I don't buy that. Like the credibility of them because of the time gap, because of the copies, Just looking at the New Testament and some of the stuff you're looking at the New Testament, because I'm like looking at the life of Jesus, because here's the reality. If if you can prove that Jesus was not who he said he was, you can throw the rest of the Bible out. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus did what he said he did, that changes everything. That changes everything. And so just the New Testament, just the New Testament, only in in Greek, So a Greek copy, meaning translated to the language of Greek or written from the original Greek, 5,000 copies. If you add other languages that were copied into, we have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. The time gap between those originals and the copies is 40 years. So that means when those copies began being circulated, there was people who actually were alive when Jesus was executed when he was crucified, that claim that he rose again. So the the validity of these copies is unquestioned. The evidence is highly favorable towards the existence, the truth, the credibility of the New Testament. So the evidence stacks up towards giving proof to the Bible. The second thing is the execution of Jesus. There is no dispute Secular scholars, Christian, hopefully Christian scholars would agree, but no dispute among any scholars that Jesus was executed. You could go anywhere and find that's just, and not just in the Bible, but across the board. Uh, uh, Looking back at historical documents, and if you have even one or two sources that give credit to it, it's usually counted as that's a credible source. We have over five different sources, not Bible, outside of the Bible, Not counting scripture, but five sources, secular sources that give credit and factual to that Jesus was crucified the way he was crucified, that he was on a cross. You could go through different sources like Josephus, who was a first century uh, Jewish historian. I won't say all the different names, but the Jewish Talmud, all these different things that give credit. They talk about this thing that happened. And it gives credit to the fact that Jesus was executed, the truth that that actually happened. In fact, Gerd Ludman is an atheist scholar and and, and a wonderful name too, Gerd. Um, But Jesus, this is his quote, from an atheist scholar said, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. This is an atheist. And, and it's hard to go back anything historically to say that it's indisputable. Like to say, no, without a shadow of a doubt, there's no doubt that happened. Like you don't find that often. And this atheist says that the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, it's indisputable. Nobody would say it did not happen. And, and so we have the, the evidence stacks up. The execution of Jesus gives proof that this actually happened, this took place. Um, and then the other thing we have is early accounts, early accounts or early reports. And and what we mean by this is like how close to the crucifixion or the resurrection did these reports start to circulate? You could go back and um, the early reports, in fact, the first century Christians, like talking about people who actually physically saw Jesus, touched Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard Jesus teach, saw some of his miracles. Um, They came up with these first century Christians, these first century believers came up with this creed And this creed talking about the facts, it's similar to what we just sang. They came up with this creed, and the Apostle Paul preserved this creed in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's what it says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So, what Paul is saying here is, I'm giving to you, like I'm not changing this in my own writing. I'm not adjusting the phrasing. I'm giving it to you exactly as these early Christians gave to me. I'm giving exactly what was given to me. He says, I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying here is like, hey, this Jesus, like he really walked, he, he died, he rose again. And there's people that are still living that actually have seen him, you could go talk to them now. Like, like that's a pretty big statement, right? And so he says, some have passed away, some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then all, all the apostles... Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul, as he's writing here, one of the early accounts of the resurrection of Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't just stuff like has been passed down from our ancestors. This this isn't false hope that we're holding on to. We actually saw this guy. We saw the risen Lord. So these early accounts began, and the timeline is important because 1 Corinthians where this creed was written, was written about 54 to 55 A.D., after Christ had died. Jesus, his death, most believe it to be around 30 A.D. So the importance here is this creed has been formalized into written word within 25 years after Jesus had risen again. That means, like I said, eyewitnesses would have been alive walking around. I mean, you could have questioned them on it. Like, that's a big deal, right, to be able to say, this is what I saw, if somebody could come at you and be like, did you really see this in this kind of battle? But in fact, even better than that is the first two biographies of Alexander the Great. Again, somebody that nobody would dispute his existence, nobody would dispute his writings, but the first two biographies of Alexander the Great were written 400 years after the fact. So his biographies, 400 years after his existence, after his life. But we have accounts of Jesus' resurrection within 25 years of it taking place. And, and, and even that, even closer to that is Paul. We learn about Paul. Paul used to be Saul. If you grew up in church, you've heard this story in Acts chapter 9. Saul went around killing Christians. Like it was his desire to stop the message of Jesus. That was what he was on a mission to do. On one of these missions, he gets uh, knocked off his horse, and Jesus himself speaks, the resurrected Jesus speaks to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? Paul immediately goes into this town and meets with believers, with, with people that are following Christ. Some scholars believe this is where Paul received this creed, this Apostles' Creed. Some believe it was later, a few years later, Paul went into Jerusalem, and he met with James, who was mentioned in the creed, as one who has seen Jesus. And some believe there. Either way, we have about a one to six year window where Paul was given one to six years after the resurrection of Jesus, where he was given this creed. And most scholars believe by the time it got formulated into written word, that belief had already started months earlier. In fact, uh, James D.G. Dunn, a theologian, said this creed, this tradition this, in 1 Corinthians that we read, this creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated within months of the resurrection. So within months of this resurrection, the apostles, this becomes their, their mark, what they hold on to. This is our belief system. So we see the early accounts. The fourth thing we see is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Jesus' body was buried in a borrowed tomb borrowed by Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a few different factors at play with the empty tomb. One is the Jerusalem factor. The fact that this all took place in the same city where he was crucified. The site of Jesus's tomb was known by non-Christians and Christians alike. So it would have been a really difficult movement to start right there in the city where Jesus was crucified. The other uh, uh, factor that play with the empty tomb is the criteria of embarrassment. And what we mean by that is usually if somebody's printing something and it's going to embarrass them, they would not put it into the story. But if you look throughout the scriptures, some of the first people that found the empty tomb were women. And in this day and age, in this context, the voice or the testimony of a woman wasn't even allowed in court. Nobody would have heard. So for the disciples... This Apostles' Creed, for them to claim and put in these stories that women were the first to discover this, they would have been immediately thrown out as not credible. So the fact that this would kind of embarrass them in in, in a sense, the fact that they added in gives evidence to the proof of the truth of it, the validity of it, the credibility of it. The other thing is even opponents of Jesus, those that were against him, admitted the tomb was empty. If you look at some of the soldiers and some of the Romans, their first claim was, well, the disciples must have stole the body. By that claim, they're they're implying that the tomb is empty. So either way, we have an empty tomb. So the question is not, is the tomb empty? The question is, how did it get empty? And you look at the characters that play the Romans, they wanted Jesus dead. So why would they have stole the body? The Jews wanted Jesus to stay dead. Because him rising again kind of hurts their case. Uh, the, the disciples, if you look at most of the followers of Jesus, they lived lives of suffering. They were tormented. They had a, lot, a lot of them were killed for their belief. So the fact that they would live this lie out doesn't make sense. The best explanation is because the tomb is empty, is because Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, you look at the empty tomb as the ultimate scoreboard. Right, like I don't know if you ever play sports and somebody's talking a lot of smack, like talking trash, but you're like whooping them. I don't know. You see this sometimes, like in the NFL, like that one dude who's like on special teams and their team's like down thirty and he makes like one tackle and he jumps up like he won the Super Bowl and you're like, bro, you're getting spanked, but good tackle, congratulations. Um, But like you know what? Like when if you're on the winning team, right? Well, you just look up and you say scoreboard, right? Like you can talk all the trash you want, but. Scoreboard. So you, I don't know what you're going on in your life. The enemy might be talking a lot of trash to you. Like your current circumstance might be look like it, it looks pretty bleak. Things don't look pretty good. But you can look back at your problems and say scoreboard because we serve a God that emptied the tomb. And if you, you could actually go to Jerusalem, a little delay clap, I like it. I'll take it anyway. It's okay. So you could go to Jerusalem, to this site, and the tomb is empty. Most people believe in one, but some have different opinions that there's two that they kind of go back and forth. And my opinion of that is we serve a God that's so big, he emptied two tombs. Like, they're both empty. So pick one. It don't matter. They're empty. Our God's not there. If you, Other religions and other leaders of religions, they're still in their tombs or their graves or they're still dead. Our God lives. That's a huge factor in the credibility of Scripture that Jesus rose from the dead. We have an empty tomb. The last one is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Jesus, it said, appears to over 500 people. Over 500, like physically saw him. Some touched him. They talked to him. They, they spent time with him. These eyewitnesses that actually saw him, in fact, a, a lot of atheists will lean on this idea that they had a hallucination. That, that maybe they really wanted this to be True. And so they kind of thought this really happened, and that's kind of, and so a, a guy that I've studied and followed, his name is Lee Strobel. I don't know if anybody's heard of him, but Lee Strobel was an atheist, and he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. His wife um, went to a church service, got saved, became a Christian, comes home and tell him, as an atheist, he's like, why would you, he, she, he thinks she's foolish. He thought Christianity was for those that like dreamers, those fools, people that didn't have logic, and so he was kind of upset. And so, as an investigative reporter, he set out on a about a two year journey to prove that Jesus was not who he said he was. He thought his logic, his investigations, could come to the point to prove Jesus was not who he said he was. And if he could break that down, then he could ruin her faith. And his whole goal. I don't know if you've ever had like a wife. Um, like say it pleasantly like nag you or tell you to, and you just like oh i can't stand that like but like this dude really couldn't stand it he was on a mission to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong, woman. I don't know if he called her that, um, but he probably shouldn't. So um, he ended up being wrong, so it worked out good. But he, he went on, and one of his beliefs, because he kind of started going through all these facts and a lot of these uh, uh, evidence, all these things we've seen, and he gets to the point where he's like, he would hold on to, they must have hallucinated. Like, they really wanted to believe this so bad they thought they saw this. So he actually went to a philosopher who studied the art of hallucination and kind of this type of thing, and he asked him, and he lays the evidence before him. And this philosopher of this university looks back at him and says, for five over 500 people to have the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. And so from that point on, Lee Strobel began to kind of wrap his mind around this idea that this must be true. Put it this way. I don't know if when you were kids, you ever played the telephone game, you know, where you line up and you tell somebody something. And then by the time it gets to the end, it's like something totally outrageous and funny. Or if you were kind of a punk like me, you just changed the story mid, mid sentence just to make fun of the whole game. And so, cause like, if it gets to the end, that's no fun. Like you want it to be some crazy story, right? But like, can you imagine doing this telephone game with over 500 people? Like, there would be like a unicorn coming out of the tomb by the end of the story. Like, there is no way that story makes it to the end. So for over 500 people to have the same story, unchanged, with the same foundation at its core, that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus walked this earth, Jesus lived... Jesus was crucified, and Jesus rose again, and that story has not changed for over thousands of years. It's the same story. The same story that was in the first century is the same story today, that Jesus lives, and he wants to be a part of our life, and he wants to speak to us through his word. There's some great resources that you can look at because, like I said, that's just a quick overview and it could be a lot of information, but um, there's a couple resources that you could check out. One is that by the book by the man Lee Strobel, I said, The Case for Christ. That book is the story that he wrote out about his discovery in searching to prove Jesus wrong and thus doing, he became a Christian. So it gives some great uh, tools, some great evidence. They actually, if you have teenagers... That book, they have a youth edition, which is a great book for them to go through as they begin to navigate these times on campuses or college students, um, how to talk to people about your faith in a practical, logical way. Great resources. Uh, Josh and Sean McDowell also have the evidence that demands a verdict. These are great. Just a couple. There's many more. But I encourage you to, to go a little deeper with your own study of the facts and the validity of the scriptures. And because you want to know that you can trust it. And once we get to the point where we know we can trust it, then what do we do with that? What do we do with God's word now that I can trust it? Well, hopefully we pick it up and read it. And Mark Batterson, the author of this series that we're doing called Whisper, uh, he wrote this. He said, no matter how many times we read the Bible, it never gets old because it's timeless and it's timely. It's timeless, meaning it doesn't change. It's always relevant. Like, we're in a culture where it's like, let's be relevant, right? Like, the Bible is the most relevant thing we have. Like, you can go from skinny jeans to baggy jeans. Like, we can change trends. I don't care. Like, uh, but, but the Bible is not going to change and it's relevant. It's relevant. It's relevant. It was relevant to my grandparents. It's relevant to me and it'll be relevant to my kids because it's timeless and it's timely. You could read the same verse. And then a few weeks later, read that same verse again, and it speaks totally different to you. There's verses I read when I was single that, that hit me in a different way. And then when I got married, I thought, wow, this is a good verse for my wife. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But like it, it, the perspective, because my circumstances changed, my, my interpretation and the way that revelation hit me was different because of my circumstances. And so the Scripture, it's timely, So what you're going through, there's a verse that can help you. There's a a word from God that can guide you. It's timeless and it's timely. Charles Spurgeon said a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who is not. So so we want to be people that get in the word of God. Mark Batterson said the goal of reading the Bible is not getting through the Bible. It's getting the Bible through us. It's getting the Bible in us, so that's what comes out of us. When you get the Bible in you, what happens when the heat gets turned up in your life? That relationship struggle kind of rears its ugly head, right? Like you have a little fight. Guess what's going to come up? Not that old past. Not your anger issue. What's going to come out is the outflow or the abundance of the heart is going to speak. And when you got God's word in you, guess what's going to come out of you? It's God's word. And so when you face situations that you don't know how you're going to handle in this world in your own mind, when you got God's word in you, that's what's going to come out of you. When you got a relationship, you got somebody you work with that you're like, man, I hate seeing them every Monday. You're already thinking about it right now. Like you ain't even focused on my sermon because you're thinking about that joker in the cubicle next to you. Get focused on my sermon. This is a good one. You guys need to pay attention. No, I'm just kidding. But you're, you're focusing on those people that bug you, right? When you get God's word in you, guess what's going to happen? It's going to change the way you interact with those people. You're going to begin to love those people in a different way because you got God's word in you. When it goes in you and it gets in you, it's going to come out of you. It's not just about getting through the Bible. We want to get the Bible through us so that it changes the way we live. There's a few things that God's word brings to us. God's word brings power. God's word brings power. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. You want to live a life of power? Get God's word in you. Get God's word in you, and you'll get power. You'll have power to face your day. You'll have power to face the circumstances in your life. second thing God's word brings is healing. Psalm 107 says he sent out his word, and it healed them. And delivered them from their destructions. Proverbs chapter 4 says, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. When I, when I read that, what I think of is like leaning in, right? Like I don't know if you've been in a situation and like when it gets intense, you're like, oh, I'm going to lean in or like the edge of your seat. You know what I mean? It's like be attentive. I don't know if, you've, if, if you have kids, but you understand when somebody's like hearing what you're saying, but they're not listening. Uh, If if you have kids, do you feel me? Like when you're telling, because as a parent, you talk all the time, right? Clean your room, pick up your toys, stop doing that. Don't hit your sister. Put your food down. Eat your food. Don't throw your food or whatever it is. Like like you're always talking to your kids, but they just look at you with that blank. Like you know they hear words coming out of your mouth, but they're not listening. Like sometimes I feel like we do that with the Bible. We're like God. I see the words, but I have no idea what it means. And and like and God's saying, incline you. Like lean in, be attentive. Be attentive to my words. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. God's word brings healing. God's word brings direction. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It brings direction. God's word, and the last thing, God's word brings freedom. Luke 4.18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim. That means speak God's word. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's the word of God that brings freedom in our life. But we got to get that word in us. I remember as a kid um, growing up in church, I was the type, some of you guys can relate to me, some of you didn't um, have kind of a church background. I grew up in church, meaning I was born and I grew up in a time where we did like two or three services on Sunday morning, um, have a little break, and then you'd come back for service Sunday night. And then because we needed a little extra Jesus juice, we came back on Wednesday. So, like, we were always there. And sometimes, Like, they would trick you, and, like, we got to go pick something up, and they'd have a guest speaker in town, he was going to be there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm like, we're here all night. Like, I used to tell people, because back where I was, they had pews, not chairs like this. i tell them it was pews, because as a kid, I just went, ooh, and fell asleep, like, in the pew. Like, that was literally, that joke will be funny on the way home, but um, text me when you laugh at it. So, um, but I remember growing, I was at church all the time. and, And I remember, especially in youth group, right, like, they guilt trip you. Like the only message I remember my youth pastor speaking, he had like a stool, and he was like breaking the legs off. And he was saying the spiritual disciplines are like these three legs of the stool. Like prayer, crack if you're not praying, and then you got to balance on the stool, you know what I'm saying? And then you crack off the reading of the Bible, and if you don't do these things, like your stool is going to be hard to sit on. And like, so I was like, well, I better read my Bible, right? So it would be like youth camp where I got saved for like the 65th time. Um, or, or like, you know, like my friends are going down, so like I better go down. Like at youth camp, they had like snack bar after the church service. So I'm like, I'm going to go down there and pray because the quicker I do that, the quicker we get to snack bar. Like I was super spiritual, guys. Like I promise you. But um, I did love Jesus. It just took a little while. A work in progress. So I remember, though, they were like, you got to read your Bible. And I was like, all right, I'm going to read my Bible. Like I'd get super motivated. I'd be like, I'm going to get up as, like, a 15-year-old. I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. I was like, 15-year-olds don't even know 6 a.m. exists. What was I thinking? So I was like, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I don't know. You don't have to confess, but I know there's people out there who, feel me, who tried to read through the Bible in the year, and, like, by mid-February or March, you're, like, already a month behind, and you're like, ah, forget it. I'm just going back to a proverb a day. It keeps the devil away. And so, like, you're like, there's no way this is happening, Right? Or you get to like numbers and you're like, why in the world? I don't, even, I hate math. Why'd they put a book of numbers in the Bible? Like I'm done, I quit, and like you like give up, right? Or what I would do as a kid sometimes is I called it Bible Russian Roulette, where I just take my finger and wherever it land, be like that must be what God's speaking to me, right? Like, bam, and Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, bam, go and do likewise. Like wait a minute, what are you saying to me, God? Like it just didn't work out very well, right? occasionally you'd hit those spiritual moments. But for the most part, you're like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know how to read the Bible. So you might even be here and be like, okay, like, I'm listening. Like, you've kind of given the proof that this thing is true. Like, I get it. We should read it. But how? Like, what am I supposed to do? And so quick, I mean, real practical, but these are kind of some keys I've found personally. You may find your own way, and that's awesome. But, like, for me, I found a few keys to studying God's word is pick a place. For me, I have a specific place in my house, a specific chair I like. Um, Like if my kids are in it, I literally punch them. out. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. I don't don't do that. But I like have this seat that I sit in all the time, and it's where I go. I know when I'm there at the specific place, that's where I'm going to kind of meet with God. That's where I'm going to read his word. I encourage you, find a place. And that might be difficult for some because maybe you have roommates or maybe you have kids or a smaller area you're living in. It might have to be in your car. Maybe for you, you're kind of like outdoorsy, and you're like, I I like to go out to the park or go on a walk. Whatever it is for you, there's no specific place where God says, this is where I'll meet with you. Like, just find a place that kind of fits you and pick that place and make that place your place where you're going to meet with God, where you're going to read his word, and then pick a time. What I found is, like, when I have a specific time and a place I know that that when that time comes, that's where I'm going to take this time to focus on God. For me, it might mean turning off notifications on the phone. It might mean kind of silencing some other noise so that I can get focused on what God wants to say to me in that moment. So pick a place, pick a time. And again, you might be a morning person. That's kind of me. I like getting up, starting my day that way. It kind of gets me focused. Some of you might not be morning people. You're like, Jesus, don't get up before coffee at 9 a.m. I, I get it. Like, everybody's different. Maybe you're in the evening. Maybe you're at lunch. Just pick a place, pick a time, and then pick a plan. In our day and age, it's so easy to find a reading plan. Uh, version, the Bible app, we put our notes on there live. Um, you can go on there. There is, like, year-long plans. There's 30-day plans. There's week-long plans. There's marriage plans. There's um, uh, financial plans. Literally every topic you can think of, there's a plan. A book study plans. So my encouragement, pick a place, pick a time. Pick a plan and then be consistent. Be consistent. You know, it takes a little while to form a habit, right? And that's really what reading the Bible is, a spiritual habit or a spiritual discipline. Not every time that I sit down to read my Bible, do the skies part, angels come down and sing glory to God in the highest. And, like, it's not like that, right? A lot of times I don't necessarily have this moment where, oh, God spoke to me this morning. But you know what happens? What happens? is when my goal is not getting through the Bible, but getting the Bible through me, I begin to recognize my, my day-to-day, what I read that morning or maybe what I read earlier in the week. When I'm out working with somebody or talking to somebody, guess what begins to come out? Hey, you know, I was reading this the other day, and I, and I almost step back and be like, wow, God, you're actually doing what you said you do, God. I'm actually, it's coming out of me. I, it's, it's amazing how it happens. And, and here's the thing is because it takes time. It's just like if you played sports, it takes practice. You don't show up at your first game and think you're going to start hitting jumpers like Steph Curry if you didn't put any work in the offseason. I said first service, unless you're Caleb, because he's always on fire. But because I used to play with him, that's why I pick him on my team. I just know when I pass it to him, I ain't getting the ball back. So, um, but, so he better score, right? So it's got to be good. But, but most of us, we got to put in practice. If you want to show up on game day ready to play and ready to perform, you got to put in practice. If when the fire gets turned up in your life and situations are kind of causing friction and there's some trouble, if you want the Word of God to be what comes out of you, you need to be putting the Word of God in. you got to spend time with God. Study some of those resources we talked about. Study God's Word. Because here's the thing. It all comes back to what this book points to is Jesus. And, and it's all about a relationship with Jesus. This book, it's many different books. Not on my, it is on my iPad, but um, it's many different books by many different authors, but it tells one story. It's the story of Jesus. It's why we do what we do here at Project. Because it's all about, it's all because, and it's all for Jesus. So that's my thing is if we can trust God's word, it's really not a question of am I going to read the Bible or can I trust this? It's do I trust Jesus? So would you bow your heads with me?